We thank you that you hear our voices. Your word tells us what we would never, never otherwise presume to believe, and that is that you inhabit our praises. What a blessing it is to bless you. We acknowledge tonight that you are a great king, and we thank you that you are the king in our life. Thank you for the kingdom of God that you have made a way for us to be a part of, Lord. And we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to build both our lives and our eternities upon it. And Lord, there is in a very shaky world. And Jesus, you described all other foundations as being sand. And we see it before our eyes. We thank you that no matter what shakes in the world, we know the foundation is sure under our feet as we know your word and as we obey your word. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit now and give us a supernatural capacity to hear your voice through your word tonight. And we ask it of you, Father, in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 16 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the book of Matthew. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and some men are coming up the aisles. They'll spot you. Put a Bible in your hand. It'll make it easy for you to um, be able to follow along uh, on the Sunday evenings where we try to cover a little larger section of Scripture than on the Sunday mornings. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. As we kind of finished up a, a couple of weeks ago and not getting quite all the way through chapter 16, but coming upon some verses that I didn't want to rush through merely uh, to finish the chapter, we saw how it was that uh, Jesus had spoken to the disciples over the fact that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be uh, badly treated, ultimately be crucified and uh, be raised on the third day. This seemed like a very negative confession uh, to the apostle Peter, and uh, he pulled Jesus aside. You've got to give him credit for um, doing it privately. And he rebuked Jesus for making that kind of confession. Far be it from you, this shall not uh, happened to you, and Jesus then declared to him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are never ever to tempt any saint of the Lord uh, to quit uh, from uh, God's calling upon their lives, no matter how difficult that calling gets. It was Jesus' calling to come into the world to die on that cross for our sins, to be buried, to be raised again on the third day. And of course, Peter's counsel to him could not be more misguided than it was, but it's a picture. It's in the Bible here because it's a picture of what we can do to one another. And so often in our, you know, the, um, the, the poor definitions of love that prevail within the culture today, uh, we have the idea that anybody begins to go through anything difficult, even in fulfilling God's call upon their life, that they are free to abandon that and to preserve themselves and to save themselves from the hardship. The problem is, is that if everyone does that, there's nobody left to serve the Lord. 
because it is a hard road, no matter what it is that God calls us to. Uh, It isn't just the ministry that He calls us to. It's the character that He develops within our lives as we fulfill that ministry. This uh, Christian life is a long, slow death to self, and it is a preparation for heaven. This is not our home. And so any temptation that we might bring to another to quit something that God has called them to uh, simply because it's hard. We're being an instrument of the devil in, in doing that. It's his voice. One of the strongest temptations and voices of the devil uh, in a person's life, and certainly any Christian who's giving themselves fully to obeying what God's called them to do, discouragement, a very powerful device, and what people are in need of at that point is an encouragement to perseverance and to continuing, and uh, Peter kind of failed here, but as is the case with so many of Peter's failures in the Word, we can recognize that uh, we're not too far away from him on this, and we learn a great deal as a result of, of the record of it. Jesus then moves from Uh, this application of all of this to himself and what Peter is doing, and letting him know that this applies not only to him in Jesus' calling uh, of the Father upon his life, but it applies to all of our lives, to every single Christian who desires uh, to follow the Lord. And so Jesus continues in verse 24, he said then to the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me uh, to follow Jesus, if anyone desires, and here's the assumption or the presumption that not every Christian does. Not every Christian is apparently uh, eager to go where Jesus goes in this life, to do what he does in this life, to live their life in that way. I hope it's true of all of us and every Christian in the world, but there's an if here. We have a decision that we make related to that. But if anyone desires to come after me, Jesus said, let him, number one, deny himself, number two, take up his cross and follow after me. Let him deny himself. And where the big I, me, my wants to take me in my life and where Jesus is going in in life, two entirely different places, two entirely different things. Uh, I gave my life to the Lord back in 1980. If I had continued uh, in giving my life to the Lord and then instead of following Him or at least endeavoring to do so, I decided that I'm not going to deny myself. I want the fire insurance. I want to go into heaven, but I'm going to maintain uh, control over my life and it's going to be dominated by my self-will. I don't stand in this pulpit tonight. I don't know any of you tonight. Because where my self-will would have taken me is maybe 3,000 miles away from here or wherever. And that's true of all of us. Where our self-will will take us in life and where Jesus wants to take us in life, the quality of life, the plan that he has for us are two entirely different things. So in order to follow him, there has to be a willingness to deny myself. Not to deny myself some thing, though it can include that. But what's being demanded here is something even greater. It is to deny myself to deny my self-will, the big I, me, my that lives inside of me. This is why, and I've been speaking a lot about it recently, but in this culture that we live in, 
which is a nurturing of selfishness. Uh, self is exalted. Self is the idol of the culture. Nothing is more important than what I want and what I want to do and my opinion and all of these venues to broadcast all of it. You know, that life is found in, you know, the expression of self. You'll throw your life away if you give that over to anything else. And then what happens is the influence is so powerful within the culture that we don't even recognize it when it then comes into the church. And sometimes we need a passage like this to stop us and to make us think about the fact, yes, I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but how much of my life is still lived under self-will. I'm making all of the decisions. I'm making all of the decisions on the basis of what is best for me, and no thought given to what is God's call upon my life, and what does He want to do through my life. And we need a verse like this to pull us back a little bit and to, and to ask ourselves, how much of my life is being lived under the I, me, my, my will, rather than denying myself in order to follow Him? Now, this verse, verse 24, is so important because I got saved back in 1980, and I got born in 1955. And so the United States of America that I grew up in, and this was the culture that fashioned me, is very different from the one today. It wasn't as self-focused. It wasn't as selfish and self-dominated. It wasn't as sin-dominated uh, as it was, at least out as it is today, at least outwardly. The, the access to sin was far more limited uh, in, in those days. And uh, But, you, you know, as we... Um, as we see the culture becoming as selfish as it's becoming, wanting to pull us into all of that. And in the past, you know, say in the 1950s, 1960s, etc., things started to get a little turbulent in the 60s. But prior to that in the United States of America, you had a United States that was very, very influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic or by the Bible, uh, the Old and the New Testament. And so it was a lot easier to just kind of, um, you know, deny self a lot. It's a lot harder today to follow Jesus than it was back then. And, and back then you could kind of float and it would look like, hey, I'm fulfilling what Jesus is demanding here in verse 24 because it hardly got tested in the way that it gets tested today. Our commitment to Christ as Christians in the world today is tested by the hour today, whether it's through the eye gate or the ear gate or the heart or whatever it might be. And so in the old days where this could be a verse that would just be committed to memory and every good Christian ought to know it, today the margins are so thin now in terms of walking with the Lord or walking away from Him or walking in the world and the consequences of it, that this is no longer just, never was, but certainly can't be thought of in our minds as being just some nice thing that Jesus put in the Bible. This is how we must live Christianity in the year 2016 in the United States of America, or we will not make it individually. 
we will get pulled away and we will get run over by the world and the flesh and the devil. So this is no longer just a nice verse. I'm not saying that anybody thinks of it that way, but we have to look at it even more seriously than perhaps we ever have before. And what's required to follow Jesus is to deny myself. Let him, first of all, deny himself. Then number two, to take up your cross. In that culture, the cross was a, and it spoke of death to the culture. It was an instrument of death. So we say that Jesus tells us that we are to deny ourselves. We ask ourselves immediately, to what degree? To the point of death. To the point of death. The denying of myself is to say no to myself and to say yes to God and His Word and every decision in life, every fork in the road in life. And then when it begins to cost us something in terms of our flesh or in terms of some gratification in the world, we ask ourselves, well, to what degree are we supposed to live this kind of life? And Jesus answers it for us here. We are to take up our cross. We are to live this to the point of death, obedience to His Word, and His call upon our lives. Deny yourself. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Because where Jesus will take us in life and where we will take ourselves in life are two entirely different places. It requires following Him. The following Him speaks of a relationship. All of this comes out of a relationship. Nobody's going to do all of this just because it's a verse in the Bible or that it's some kind of a rule. We do this because we love Him. We love His fellowship. We don't know how we'd get through another day without Him. We want to follow Him. We want to discover the life that He has planned for us. One of the greatest testimony that anybody can have in life is to become born again while attending Sunday school and church and then attending church and growing in the Lord the rest of their lives. That's the greatest testimony. But one of the wonderful things that can happen about getting saved a little bit later in life where you already went out and spent two years, five years, 20 years, 40 years trying to find the meaning of life apart from God and satisfaction apart from God is you realize it's not out there. And that's one of the great things is then when a person commits their life to the Lord, it's not like there's something looming out there that they haven't already tried or they haven't seen somebody else try, and that can pull me away. We come to the Lord and we look and we say, I don't want my will anymore. I don't want the plans that anybody else has for my life anymore. I want to follow him. I want to find out what his plan is for my life. And the interesting thing is, here you've got a preacher up here speaking this kind of a thing, and if you're new to the Bible, it can look like, oh, this translates into the worst life imaginable. It's the greatest life a person can live. There is no greater life that a person can live than to follow him, deny ourselves, pick up our cross in doing so. Everything else is to drive off a cliff ultimately, whether in this life or in the life to come. Beautiful, strong passage. I had a, a good friend. He was my best friend all through high school, and he was, he was a part of a religion, a non-Christian cult. And 
And in this particular uh, group, they would invite, you know, high schoolers to dances and parties and all of these kind of things as like a, a gateway drug to the religion. They were never upfront about what you were getting involved in the middle of. It was incremental. It was like a secret society. They got you here, and then they revealed this much to you. Then they got you into the next phase, and then they figured out what you might be able to handle there, and so forth and so forth. Jesus doesn't know any of it. He is the light. He walks in the light. He is up front with everyone that wants to follow him, what is required in order to do so. And I love it because he's so strong about it. But there's no apologies. He's not wringing his hands. Oh, this will be the end of you if you do this. Sorry to demand this of you. He, he's up front. He's bold about it. He's a man about it. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then the remainder of the chapter here, he lays out and addresses the things that he knows that will pop up in life and in our hearts that will come against us in obeying what he calls us to do there in verse 24. And the first thing that he uh, realizes that we're immediately going to have to fight in order to do this is our own selfishness, our own self-will. So he says in verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so here is this um, uh, desire here the, uh, for self-preservation, my will, what do I want to do? And Jesus says, if you want to live for your own will, you will waste your life, you will throw your life away. If you lose your life, you say no to yourself and commit to the life that I have for you, then you're really going to find life. You're really going to discover what life is really about. And it's true, isn't it? I give an amen maybe right here on that. When you compare the life that we once had and the life that we have now, there is no comparison. One is existence. It is existence. And, uh, but the other is life. We've been made for a relationship with God. We've been made to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And we will, no one will be ever satisfied until we're engaged in that. But again, he addresses the desire to save. Uh, if you s desire to save my life, no, I'm going to have this Christian uh, relationship on my own terms. I'm going to define it rather than the Bible and in God and the Holy Spirit. Then we will simply waste our life. We will fritter it away. The second great thing that will exalt itself uh, in our life in an attempt to keep us from living the life that Jesus calls us to is material things, wealth and uh, material comfort. And so he goes on to speak in verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so here is, is Jesus. He looks and he, it's interesting, he speaks to us at the, about the value of a human soul. And he says a human soul, just one, just one, not a room full, not seven billion, just one soul. One soul, which is eternal, is of more value than the entire earth. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And isn't it amazing how Jesus recognizes the value of our soul long before we ever did? I gave my life to the Lord 
in early adult life, but he valued my soul and, and uh, long before I ever valued it. I was willing to sell it out for almost any kind of price. We think about the Indians who sold uh, the island of Manhattan to the settlers for a, a set of beads that were worth now what we know to be the equivalent of $24. Well, listen, I'd have sold out for 12 I'd have sold out for eight in terms of the world or the things of the world. I'd have thrown my soul away any one of a thousand different ways. But the Lord comes into our life, shows us that our soul and His plan for our life is more valuable than all of that. No man's soul is, every person's soul is worth more than the entire world. But he recognizes how this love for money, this love for wealth, it will pull people away from following God. And then once they commit their life to God, from following Him wholeheartedly. And so it's good for it to examine our lives tonight. And, and, and to ask ourselves as a Christian, is that the category that I'm in? That a desire for money and a desire for material security, nothing wrong with that if it's found in God's will for my life. But is that the God? Is that the focus of my life? And I'm disregarding God's plan and His purpose for my life in the pursuit of it. It's a great enemy to Christians uh, fulfilling God's call upon their life and following Jesus. And then verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and uh, with his angels, and then he will reward each according uh, to his works. And so this speaks of the importance of an eternal perspective in all of this. And to realize, okay, yes, I am denying myself, and I am picking up my cross, and I am following him. And any Christian who has two ears and has two eyes and is aware of what is around them realizes that that means there's an awful lot of things in life, an awful lot of experiences in life that I am not going to experience as a result. And if my focus becomes temporal, if my focus becomes uh, this world, or I begin to get the idea that this world is all there is for me as a Christian, then my focus will be on all of the things that I might be missing out on in obeying God's call upon my life. And so Jesus says, don't allow that to happen. Keep your focus eternal, to realize this is just a vapor, this thing that we call life. There's an eternity on the other side of this life in which our reward will be for eternity. And so these safeguards against, uh, against being pulled away from following Jesus in the way that we ought, the warning concerning selfism, the warning concerning uh, material wealth and materialism, and then the warning against a temporal worldview, a forgetting the fact that on the other side of all of this, there is a heaven. And I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So a wonderful, beautiful word uh, from the uh, Lord to the disciples and to us tonight. We recognize all of it, the same tugs, the same pulls, the same competition uh, for our heart and for uh, our focus and our attention are as strongly upon us as ever it was upon the disciples 2,000 years ago. And then Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that 
there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming uh, in His kingdom. And so this is an introduction, really, that verse into chapter uh, 17, which begins to speak about uh, Jesus' transfiguration. I am so thankful that there are chapters and verses in the Bible, or I wouldn't know, how would we say, okay, let's turn to Isaiah 53. We'd all pull out the scroll and start from the beginning and roll to it. But every once in a while, not very often, they kind of get the verse just one off, and you think, man, these guys did so great getting this figured out. How could they miss not making verse 28 of chapter 16 the opening verse of chapter 17? The best of men are men at best, right? All right? So sometimes they goof, and it gives me hope. So here's the introduction now. Uh, for Peter, James, and John who were with them when Jesus was saying this. Now they're going to see the uh, Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And this is uh, doubtless Mount Hermon, uh, which is in the northern part of Israel. It's the only ski resort in the nation of Israel. You might be shocked. There's a ski resort in Israel? I thought the whole place was desert. You've never been to Israel. And it's a very forested area, beautiful uh, part of Israel up in the north, and a very high mountain. It's in the very area that they are currently in. Remember, they're in the north in the Galilee, Caesarea Philippi, etc., and, and so probably going up on to uh, Mount Hermon. And as they're there in this place, Jesus was transfigured. What a beautiful thing, transfigured before them. And what happens here is Jesus takes on His eternal glory. You remember on uh, the night before He was crucified and He's praying His great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, He prayed to the Father very early in the prayer. It always, it always, it's haunting. It's, a, it's just like got a melancholy chord in my heart that does something good in my heart. But He prayed to the Father and He prayed and He asked the Father, that he would once again know and experience the glory that he knew with the Father before the world began. And we realize when he makes that prayer that Jesus, when he came into the world, born into the world as the Son of God, he never laid aside his deity, but he did lay aside his glory. And now here are the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured into his eternal glory, and they get to see this. And uh, before I forget it, it's interesting when you read the book of Revelation, uh, and, and in the opening chapter, there is the Apostle John. And remember the Apostle John in John's Gospel, whenever they're eating or these kind of intimate environments where the disciples are all together, John was the one who sat or leaned closest to Jesus in the fashion that they ate in those days. He was closest to Jesus, and when he would have a question, he would lean over and ask, and thus he would lean upon Jesus' breast or upon his chest as a result of it. The intimacy of relationship between the Apostle John 
and Jesus. And John was probably by far the youngest of all of, uh, of the disciples. When John is taken up and given a vision of Jesus in his eternal glory from the island of Patmos and given the revelation that is called the revelation, and he sees Jesus, he falls down like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. He is completely undone. This one who knew Jesus with such familiarity and, and intimacy, when he sees him in his glory, he just collapses down on the ground, and Jesus reassures him that he is who was and is and who is to come and puts him kind of back together. So often, I don't know how you do it, but so often I'm so familiar with Jesus uh, through the Gospels, through the New Testament, that when I think about him today, I think about him in his incarnation. And yet he is no longer in the form, so to speak, of his incarnation. He now possesses his eternal glory. He is everything that he was in his incarnation. Nothing has changed about him in terms of his love, his attitude toward us, his teaching, and so forth. But remember, he came in his first coming as a suffering, uh, you know, uh, Savior. In his second coming, he's coming as a conquering king. That is the position that he holds today. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. So when we pray to him, it doesn't have to change your prayers, but when we pray to him today, we are praying to him, answering our prayers, not who he was for the 33 and a half years, as glorious as that was, but for who he is now, clothed with not only the fullness of his deity, which he always had, but the fullness of his glory. They got a glimpse at that. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And these three get to see it during Jesus' incarnation. When they look at him, his face shone like the sun. When's the last time you looked at the sun? I think I was about eight years old. I learned my lesson, <laughs> right? You only got to look at the sun one time to say, don't do that again. Why? Because it's bright, and you see spots in front of your eyes for a long time after you do it. That is super bright. And so here is Jesus, and his face is shining like the sun, we're told in the Revelation that in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be any need for the sun and the moon, that Jesus, his glory will provide the light and the radiance of uh, the eternal abode that we're going into. They see his face, face shining like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And the idea is um, it, it, it can be just as easily understood as his clothes were like lightning. That's how bright uh, last time you've seen lightning, uh, that's how bright his clothes were. So, wow, these guys are really, really seeing something. And then behold, in the midst of all of this, Jesus transfigured into his glory. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, the disciples, talking with Jesus. They didn't talk with the disciples. They talked with Jesus. So significant here. Moses represents 
the uh, law of Moses in the Old Testament. He represents the first five books of the Bible, highly esteemed by the Jews. Elijah was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament in many regards. He represents the prophetic section of uh, the Old Testament. So here is Moses representing the law, or Elijah representing the prophets, and they are talking with Jesus. Very significant here because they are talking with Jesus and they are all getting along. There is no beef here. There is no contradiction between Moses and Jesus, no contradiction between the prophets and Jesus, Elijah and Jesus. And here are the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day thinking that what Jesus is teaching and who he is and what he is saying is contradictory to the law of Moses, contradictory to the prophets, and here is this transfiguration revealing that no, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are all on the same page. There's no contradiction at all. That's why Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders in his day, and he said to them, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. But these are they which testify of me. The law of Moses testifies to Jesus as the Messiah. The prophets testify to Jesus as the Messiah. There's no fight between the three of them at all. And this is part of the revelation that, uh, that the disciples are receiving as a result uh, of this, the big fight that they're in the middle of, that the Sadducees and the Pharisees think that uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, Jesus is contradictory to uh, the Old Testament. He's not at all. And then Peter, he answered as he sees all of this, Mark's gospel. Mark was uh, probably a disciple of Peter, And uh, that's why Mark's gospel is considered to be kind of an extension. It's like Peter's gospel. And uh, so Mark includes in his gospel the fact that somewhere in the course of this thing, Peter falls asleep, he wakes up, he sees this whole thing, he doesn't know what to say, never stopped him, never stopped me half the times in my life, I'm learning. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. You know, keep talking long enough and you're going to sin. So here he is, he wakes up, he doesn't know what to do, he sees Jesus, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah and all, and then he declares, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, I think it's good for Jesus and Moses and uh, Elijah to be here. Whether it's good for you to be here, yeah, sure, but uh, let's not get carried away. Lord, it's good for us to be here, and if you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he says, in essence, is saying, let us build a tabernacle for the three of you. A tabernacle is essentially a tent. It was a place, a temporary place to sleep in. And basically what Peter is saying, and it's a good thing, is he's wanting to extend this visit. Uh, Let's build a tabernacle for the three of you. I want this to go on as long as it can. The mistake that Peter makes here is that nothing wrong with his desire to lengthen this event that's occurring in his life, but in, in calling for a tabernacle for each of the three of them, he is intimating an equality between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. That's the big mistake that he makes. And it's one of the biggest mistakes that Peter 
ever made in his life, and uh, it's so big that uh, God the Father is going to step in and is going to correct uh, his, uh, his plan here and his suggestion. And while he was still speaking, he got interrupted. He tended to get interrupted by God a lot. And behold, a bright cloud then overshadowed them. Suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom, and notice that singular, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And he corrects Peter here in putting Jesus on a par with Moses or with Elijah or any mere man, no matter how greatly they're used by God. Jesus is in a category of one, all God, all man, all at the same time. And he tells uh, Peter and the disciples, this is my beloved son and in whom him alone I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is greater than the law. He is greater than the prophets. He is the fulfillment of them both. All religious teaching, all teaching from the Bible, all application of the Word of God into our lives from the Bible, it is never quite complete until it's brought to Jesus. And then to look at it and say, what does Jesus say about this subject? How did Jesus live related to this? And to realize that once we see it in his life, we have the ultimate voice on the subject. That's why, I don't know if it's like you're like me, but when I listen to Bible teaching, and I listen to mountains of Bible teaching, I love it. I can't get enough of it. And sometimes I'll hear people say something, and I'll go, ooh, I don't know, what? You know, I, I don't know, uh, what, you know? And they'll start to build a case for it a little bit, and I'm kind of digging in a little bit. But if they can, in the course of things, say, and we remember Jesus said, and it confirms the point, or we remember from the life of Jesus that he did this, all of a sudden I'm completely at peace with the truth that's being spoken, and I realize this is safe, this is something that I can embrace into my life. And there's something about that when we see it in him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I do like the word beloved there because it reminds me as a Christian in a world that's growing increasingly hostile toward Jesus, not the Jesus that they define out of their own mind, uh, something that is their own invention, but the Jesus of the Bible is not so loved in much of the world and increasingly less in the United States of America. But whatever the world thinks of Jesus, he is beloved in heaven and always remember that. And only heaven's opinion of Jesus or anything is the opinion that matters. He is loved in heaven. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. This was wild. Jesus came and then touched them. Beautiful, you know, touch of the Lord, his gentleness with them. He said, arise and don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah now gone uh, from that scene. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, how many of you know 
that most times when you have a mountaintop experience, certainly something like this, that the devil's waiting for you in the valley. Uh, almost always, right after it, you can, it, 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 just, it just gets to where you can kind of set your watch to it. Okay, God just used me, or that was a phenomenal event, or God just spoke to me, and you go, all right, He's coming with some kind of a temptation, some kind of a distraction to pull my eyes off of what God has just done, and that's precisely what is going to happen here in just a moment. So he tells them uh, that don't tell the vision to anyone until I'm risen from the dead. And his disciples, they asked him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And, and seeing Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, it reminded them of Elijah, that the Old Testament Scriptures said that Elijah would come and proceed uh, uh, precede the Messiah in the world. And I think it's in Malachi that it's, it's prophesied there. So they're looking at Jesus. Jesus is coming closer to the end of His ministry here, and they realize, whoa, 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 wait a second. In terms of that prophecy, where is Elijah in all of this? Because that's what's prophesied concerning you, concerning the Messiah. And Jesus then answers their question and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, uh, but did to him whatever they wished, and likewise the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Prior to Jesus' second coming, uh, Elijah will precede Jesus before his second coming. Uh, most Bible scholars, and I certainly believe uh, this to be true, is that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses uh, to the nation of Israel and to the world that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. And during the great tribulation period, uh, here is uh, Elijah. We don't know. We know he's going to be one of the two witnesses. It seems most likely that Moses will be the other one, even as they're coupled together here on the Mount of Transfiguration. All the miracles that they will perform during the tribulation period, it all comes out of their ministries and seems to point to them. But uh, they will come. The Antichrist will try to destroy them, try to kill them, be unable to do that uh, for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Ultimately, he will be allowed to kill them. The whole world will celebrate the death of these two witnesses. Elijah, doubtless, will be one of them. He will come prior to Jesus' second coming as a witness principally to the Jews and with Moses. Can you imagine a greater pair of witnesses to come and speak to the Jews of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah than Moses and Elijah? And that's precisely what's going to happen. Only Abraham could maybe uh, be a part of, you know, filling in that uh, threesome in terms of a witness to the Jews. So he will come before the second coming, but John the Baptist was a type of Elijah in Jesus' first coming, you remember the Holy Spirit came upon him in his mother's womb, and uh, it was prophesied concerning him that he will minister in the spirit and in the strength of Elijah. And so he did. 
uh, John the Baptist was a, a forerunner or a type or a picture of Elijah who is ultimately uh, to come. And when they had uh, come uh, to the multitude, they come down from the mountaintop, and remember Jesus has left the other nine disciples. They didn't go up onto Mount Hermon or the Mount of Transfiguration. They're down at the base of the mountain, and as they, they come down then, a man came to Jesus, kneeling down to Him and saying… So this is desperation. When men get down on their knees, I don't care to who, when a man gets down on his knees, that's a desperate man. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of vulnerability and desperation. And he kneels down to Jesus, and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. This young man had some kind of a problem in his life, something either physical or something with his mind. On top of it, he is also demon-possessed, as we'll see in just a moment. But it's important to realize in the New King James, for instance, they describe his affliction as being epilepsy. That's not exactly. It's a great guess at what uh, they, they look at it and say, here he is, he's falling into the fire, he's falling into the water. Um, if you've ever been around someone who suffers from epilepsy, when they have an epileptic seizure, if they're around a body of water, they could drown, they could fall into a fire, they completely lose control. Of, of their circumstances in that moment and become vulnerable to whatever they fall in. So it looks like something like that, but in the original language it speaks about the fact it doesn't diagnose him that closely as being epileptic, but it says that he's moonstruck, and that was an ancient word uh, for someone who has trouble with their mind. And so uh, they talk, the idea was in the ancient world that when it was a full moon, uh, people did kind of crazier things than they would do at other times. I don't know, those of you who are in law enforcement or you're in mental health or uh, whatever kind of, or work at the hospital or whatever it might be, uh, I've heard over and over again that when the full moon comes out, uh, if they don't add staff, uh, the staff is certainly on a heightened uh, awareness related to things. I don't know what it all ties to or anything like that, but the idea is that this person is under some kind of influence that's affecting them mentally. The reason that I say this is, and, and why I think it's important not to narrow it down to epilepsy on this, though that may very well be what uh, you, you know, I mean, his symptoms are very, very similar to that, is that it wasn't that many, you know, years ago in the United States of America that when a person in a, with less knowledge concerning uh, epilepsy, when a person would go into a seizure, that people would automatically presume that they were demon-possessed and attempt to deliver them of the demon rather than recognizing, no, this is a physical condition that they're dealing with. And uh, so it's important to realize that epilepsy or seizures or these kind of things, they don't uh, always mean or necessarily mean or almost ever mean that somebody is uh, demon-possessed, and, and I think it's important for that to be clear. He has some kind of a, of a, 
of a situation, and, and maybe it's associated with a demon possession. He has some kind of a, a mental problem that then manifests itself physically here. He is, does appear to be having some kind of a, a, a seizures as a result of it. And so the man said, I brought him to your disciples, uh, but they couldn't cure him. He's heard that Jesus, his disciples, can cast out demons and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and brought him for help. And the nine apostles were unable to affect him at all. Uh, we do know from one of the other Gospels that the religious leaders of the Jews were also at the base of the mountain, and they were probing the disciples with questions at this point. Apparently, uh, they noticed this weakness, this inability of the disciples to cast out the demons, uh, the demon, and so now they're starting to attack them in terms of their power and, uh, and so forth. Uh, 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 and, you know, what happened to your power or, can, you know, Jesus' ability to do this, and they're trying to discredit Jesus through the discrediting of his followers here and their lack of power in the face of the need. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he takes control. And he does in an interesting way in verse 17. Jesus answered, and he said, not to the man, not to the crowd, but to the disciples, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him. The child was cured from that very uh, hour as this great event occurred uh, and, and uh, as Jesus meets this tremendous need in, in the man's uh, son and delivers him of the demon. The, the rebuke that Jesus uh, gives us here is, is an interesting one, a verbal rebuke to the disciples, and uh, that was what he directed toward them physically. He rebuked the demon and removed it from the boy. I, when you look at this rebuke, O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? You look at that and go, Wow, is that strong. Jesus is such an encourager, and he's such a nurturer of faith and, um, and a nurturer of his disciples that when we read this, it's like, wow, something really troubles him here in what he's seeing in the disciples and what he's rebuking within their life. The interesting thing is that these disciples, these apostles, the nine, they had a long history of casting out demons and giving the power, uh, give it, having been given the power by God to do so. All the way back in Matthew chapter teven, uh, 10, they were sent out casting out demons. I mean, they knew the faith that was required to do it. They knew that they had the power. They knew that they had the authority. They knew all of these things, and yet they come up to a situation where some specific of it causes them to lose their faith in God in his power, in his authority, in their life, and all they can see now is something here that they believe they're not going to be able to change with the authority that God had given to them. And so 
in this, the lack of faith, unbelief, somehow builds up within them, and they're unable to cast the demon out of the boy. And, uh, and, and this was the condition that they were in. Now, most of the time, and I think this is the great lesson, at least the one that I pull out of it for my own life uh, as a Christian, from why this rebuke and what's it intended to do in their lives and, and mine as, as well. Most of the time, I want and I need Jesus to encourage my faith in a difficult situation. Uh, one like this, where I, want, I need him, I feel, to come and put an arm around my shoulder and, uh, and encourage my faith in the midst of this difficult circumstance that I'm in or this step of faith that I'm in the middle of or the, or the difficult uh, thing that I'm attempting to do here. But there are times, and this is one of them, when what I need more than encouragement in my Christian life is I need a rebuke to my lack of faith in the light of God's promises in His Word and in the light of my long history of God's faithfulness within my life. And I don't know about you. I suspect we're all about the same. Most of the time He comes to me, puts an arm around me, and He encourages my faith. But there's every once in a while where I'm in the middle of a pity party, I'm not being able to get through something, it's not going the way that I want it to go, and I'm expecting him to come and commiserate with me, and he tells me to put my boots up, stand up, and get going in the middle of this thing. I don't get any uh, mother out of him at this point. It's all father, you know. It's all like medieval father, <laughs> tough guy father. And, and he can step up in a time like that and say, you don't need any more faith than you have. You've got a long history with me. You've got my promises. You've got my word. You know what I can do. You know what I've called you to do. Now get up and get out there and do it. And I'll tell you, as much as I don't like that, my flesh, when he does it, there are times when it is the very thing I need to hear from him. And it can come so unexpectedly, and it can seem so harsh. But again, Jesus is not nurturing or developing weak children in this world, but children of His that can not only operate and survive the world that we live in, but to be an influence. And so sometimes He will rebuke our faith and tell us, you know enough, you've seen enough, you've been in the middle of enough. Now, screw your head on straight here and do what you're supposed to do. And I, I, how many of you have had that happen in your life? Just so, yeah, okay, great. I figured it was all of us, but I didn't want to just assume that. I wanted to know that all of us can, uh, can relate to it. And he'll do that kind of thing uh, when, uh, when he knows that we know better. Well, the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said to him in the light of all of this, why couldn't we cast uh, the demon out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. And that's the first statement that he makes there. 
For surely I say to you that if you have faith as a mustard seed, mustard seed was the smallest of all of the seeds in the Middle East there. You don't need a lot of faith. It just needs to be uh, placed in the right thing and in the right person. It needs to be placed in the Word of God and in God. A little bit of faith in a really big God is a lot better than a lot of faith in something that isn't God. And so, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and he's using a figurative language, otherwise uh, we would just walk out on a Saturday and re-landscape our yards uh, any time that we wanted to put in a built-in pool here, and I want a gazebo over here, and so forth, and, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So we know in the Bible that there is just this, uh, um, there is just is there is a, a hierarchy uh, within the military. You have generals and so forth, and captains and so forth, and each one of them uh, has a, a, an ascending authority. And so Jesus in the New Testament teaches is true of the demonic realm. And so sometimes you can go into a situation where the demon will be cast out because it's a buck private and a quick something or whatever, you know. Jesus' name, prayer, prayer of faith, two or three laying hands, and, and boom, the demon is gone. And, uh, but sometimes you can get a demon that comes from who knows where, way, way up the chain. And that, that, that demon is not going to come out except through fasting and also through prayer. It's interesting in the book of Daniel, remember where Daniel is praying and all, and the angel of the Lord is sent to Daniel in answer to his prayer, and yet this uh, demonic, uh, this demon intercepts uh, the, the angel, I, th I think it's Michael, it could have been Gabriel, but intercepts Michael. He engages in a days or weeks-long confrontation with this particular demon before he can break free and then bring the answer of the prayer to Daniel. The whole realm is very, very real. We'll talk more about it another time perhaps on a Sunday morning. But um, there are some… That is, so when we hit a situation where nothing budges. It doesn't mean that we look at that as a Christian and say, wow, uh, this is stronger than God. This is stronger than my authority. This is stronger than the Word of God. No, it just means that there needs to be concerted prayer, bringing other people involved in prayer related to it. Fasting will be necessary, but the demon will have to give way. But, uh, and, and I think personally we're going to learn. We're, I, I don't think the body of Christ in the United States is going to should ever become like demon-focused or demon-obsessed, but we're going to learn a lot more about dealing with the spiritual realm and how real the spiritual realm is um, in, as Christians in the United States of America as kind of this Judeo-Christian ethic and covering that has covered us is beginning to lift. This is going to be something I think we'll see more and more. And now while they were uh, staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly 
sorrowful. And so uh, Jesus again continues to prepare them for what is coming soon in Jerusalem. He is going to die at the hands of the religious leaders and Pilate. He will be crucified. He will rise on the third day, but he's preparing the disciples. Isn't it it one of the great things in the Christian life is to look back when hard times come and, um, you know, as, as soon as I stop uh, uh, screaming and squealing in the middle of it and I start to quiet down a little bit in my inner man, then to look around and to realize that, uh, no, as hard as this is, God has been preparing me for what I find myself in the middle of. And He's so faithful to prepare us and uh, for what he knows is coming next in our life. He's doing it in the disciples to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. And even with the warnings that he gives to them, by the time it happens in Jerusalem, they're still undone. But boy, what condition would they have been if they hadn't been forewarned by Jesus? So he continues this education of them in this regard. We won't finish the chapter. Uh, There's something very significant, I think, in this lesson concerning the temple tax, and we'll leave it for uh, addressing the next time uh, we uh, look at the book of Matthew. I would like the worship team to come forward and lead us in a couple of worship songs as we close this evening. We've covered a lot of territory tonight. We've looked at a lot of things that are very, very important from our commitment to the Lord, to faith, a lot of great things. And just important before, you know, we head out the door, get in the cars, grab the kids, all of these things, and something, everything can just begin to, you know, fade to black at that particular point to just take a moment. And if the Lord spoke anything to us to allow that to be, to say, Lord, I heard that. I internalized that into my life. And, um, and, and, uh, and then to respond to it, be able to respond to it in that way. So let's do that where it's appropriate in our lives. Otherwise, we'll just have a couple of great songs to sing to the Lord in, in worship to close out.